Today, I'm going to talk about the Roman rhetorician Quintilian. And you may be wondering why I'm going to talk about Quintilian on a channel that is devoted to the Gospels. Well, the reason is because Quintilian is one name that has come up, that's been brought up as supposedly supporting the genre thesis about the Gospels, which I uh, wrote and refuted in my book, The Mirror or the Mask. And uh, I will actually include a link to The Mirror or the Mask below in the show notes for this video. And I want to suggest if you're interested in these matters, you get a hold of a copy of that. But I didn't address this claim about Quintilian in the mirror of the mask because it didn't come to my attention, as I recall, uh, prior to my writing the book. And so I wanted to address it here. Quintilian was a Roman rhetorician who would be approximately a contemporary of the Apostle John. And in the late first century, he wrote something called the Institute of Oratory. So it's like a rhetoric textbook. What was an ancient rhetor or orator? A person who was an ancient orator would be a person who was chiefly involved in making speeches. This person might be a politician or a lawyer or a speech writer. They had speech writers like we do now where you would write a speech that someone else would give. And so that's the kind of person to whom Quintilian is addressing himself. He's giving advice on how to be a good orator and how to move your audience. In a video that I've referred to a few times in my videos, but today I'm going to quote exactly what he said. Uh, a video interview a couple of years ago, Dr. Michael Lacona is arguing for the genre thesis. And I'll go into that genre thesis a bit more in a moment. But here's what he says. Quote, Quintilian at one point says that a good historian, when writing a narrative, will add details in order to place a person within a context to make it just seem like they are there. Now, those were his exact words. And he goes on in, in that interview to liken this to the phrase, the green grass, which occurs in one of the accounts of the feeding of the 5,000. It happens to be in Mark. That statement that the grass was green is actually confirmed by an undesigned coincidence with John, who says that it was Passover time. But Dr. Lacona connects that with this supposed claim by Quintilian that he supposedly says a good historian will add details in order to place a person within a context just to make it seem that they are there. Now, what is this genre thesis that I wrote, The Mirror or the Mask, to refute? The thesis is that the Gospels are written in a, a specific genre. Most often this is said to be Greco-Roman biography, but other theorists like uh, Dr. Robert Gundry said Matthew was written in Midrash. Um, so some kind of genre where it was just understood by the audience and the author that the author was allowed to change some facts. And uh, generally, those advancing the genre theory will say, well, they weren't very big facts. But then you'll see the examples they give. And the examples are sometimes things that I think many of us would think are big facts. Um, 
most often the examples they'll bring forward will be adding or changing what they will call details. But this could involve ma uh, manufacturing a scene where a person said something and he didn't really say it in that scene at all. Maybe he said something similar elsewhere or elaborating or expanding what a person said, moving something in time or adding a detail that the person, the author is just making up. And the claim is that the readers were not deceived. And this is very important. The claim is that the readers were not deceived because the readers understood that something could be changed. So the analogy that even Dr. Lacona has made is to a uh, movie that is based on true events. We might call this a biopic. When we go to that movie, we don't know what's been changed unless we look it out somewhere else. But we know that some things may have been changed and we don't mind that. Now, there are real reliability issues here if they were right, because biopics are not things that we consider to be highly reliable original sources. And we don't have, uh, you know, truth versus history websites where we can go uh, look up and just get a, a definite word on which bits in the Gospels are true and which are, are invented. And neither did the original audience. So if they're right, there are very serious reliability issues, but the question is whether they're right. And one of the things that I contend in The Mirror of the Mask is that the whole existence of this supposed genre in which the audience just understood that some things might be made up and the audience wouldn't be misled and didn't care because they took everything with a grain of salt is very questionable. And then the further question, if even if it did exist, are the Gospels in that genre? And I discuss both of these. So this quotation about Quintilian, if it were true, would seem to support the existence of such a genre. When I saw that in the video, I went and I did some searching. Totally understandable that Dr. Lacona didn't give a specific citation in Quintilian because he's just doing an interview. But I went and started to try to find what passage he had in mind. And I found several candidates where Quintilian does say that the audience he's talking to, that he's trying to teach to be good orators, want to, you want to produce what he calls palpability. You want to include details that are making the hearer feel like he's there, making the scene palpable and using imagination. He uses the term uh, fantasia at one point. But is he talking about a good historian writing a narrative? No. So that's the first and very important point I want to make here. Quintilian is not giving advice even for good historians writing a narrative. The genre he's talking about is rhetoric, oratory. And he's very clear that he's talking about trying to move the judge. Or it might be if it's you're a politician, you're trying to move other politicians to try to get them to agree to a law or something like that. But as an orator, you're trying to manipulate the emotions in a sense. And Quintilian is kind of careless about truth, but he's careless about truth, not because he's talking about a genre in which everybody understood this, but because he doesn't care whether the audience is deceived or not. He is ruthlessly pragmatic. Your goal is to win the case. 
cue every lawyer joke that you've ever heard about the dishonesty of lawyers. Well, it's got a long history. But this is not what Dr. Lacona and Dr. Keener and Dr. Craig and others have claimed about the Gospels at all. In fact, they're very offended if you suggest that this was deceptive. They're saying, no, it's not deceptive because the audience knew that this could be changed and the audience entered it and <clears throat> had uh, different expectations. So when we show that Quintilian is just talking about being a lawyer who plays fast and loose with the truth, that shows that this does not this does not actually support the genre thesis. So here are a few quotations about that from Quintilian. For oratory fails if it's full effect and does not assert itself as it should, if its appeal is merely to the hearing, and if the judge merely feels that the facts in which he has to give on which he has to give his decision are being narrated to them and not displayed in their living truth to the eyes of the mind. Now you might say, okay, living truth, so maybe that means that they were actually true facts. Well, maybe they were, or maybe they weren't. But the important point is to move the judge. And we've got a couple more quotations that show that. This is very interesting. In a different passage, Quindillion says, well, someone might argue that this palpability isn't really so important if you're trying to obscure the truth. So he's like saying, you know, we lawyers are trying, we orators are trying to obscure the truth. The facts may be against us. And someone might think that this palpability isn't important there. But on the contrary, he says, for he who desires to obscure the situation will state what is false in lieu of the truth, but must still strive to secure an appearance of palpability for the facts which he narrates. So you're trying to make it look really vivid because you're lying. Okay. And you're trying to, uh, strive to secure an appearance of palpability. Again, this is not the genre that uh, the genre theorists, the evangelical genre theorists about the Gospels are claiming because they're claiming it's not deceptive. Here's another one. Consequently, if we wish to give the, our words the appearance of sincerity, we must assimilate ourselves to the emotions of those who are genuinely so affected, and our eloquence must spring from the same feeling that we desire to produce in the mind of the judge. And I'll be quoting further on that attempt to get your own emotions riled up. Uh, Quintilian goes on at some length that the, the, the lawyer, the orator, the rhetor must be an actor essentially a great actor who gets, you know, produces the tears in his own eyes and so forth in order to inspire those feelings in the mind of a judge. So that's not the genre that Dr. Lacona claimed. But now let's talk about what it would actually look like. Well, Quintilian gives a number of different examples, and these examples vary in their relationship to truth and in the extent to which they make it clear that they are just imaginative. He admires Cicero and he gives an example from Cicero where Cicero tags the fact that he's just imagining. And he's talking about uh, the aftermath of an orgy. So Cicero says, I seemed to see some entering, some leaving the room, some reeling under the influence of the wine, others yawning with yesterday's potations. The floor was foul with wine smears covered with wreaths, half withered and littered with 
fish bones. So a couple things you want to notice. First of all, he says, I seemed to see. So he's tagging that he's just imagining not like he actually was there. And secondly, the over-the-top nature of this. And that's something I want you to notice because we're going to contrast that with the restrained, sober nature of the gospel narratives. So, you know, look at how disgusting this scene is going into all of this detail. But he says, I seemed to see. Um, there's another passage that I'm not going to quote from Cicero where he, he says that it is true, that what he's narrating is true. And I, I kind of hope that it was. I kind of like Cicero myself, and I'd hate to think that Cicero was um, making this up. And that scene concerns a um, a leader that he considers to have been just a disgrace who was put in charge of the Roman fleet. And as Cicero describes it, he had the Roman boats pass him by in the bay while he stood there in his slippers and in a, you know, sort of luxurious clothing and was leaning on the arm of a prostitute. And Cicero says, many have seen him this way. So Cicero asserts that that's real. And for all we know, maybe it was real. Maybe that is really how this guy, you know, have the boats pass before me. And, and Cicero's just face palming how disgraceful this is for the might of Rome to be put under the uh, authority of a person who takes it this lightly. And maybe that was true. So sometimes Cicero is asserting that something is true. Sometimes he's just saying, I seemed to see. And his audience, for all we know, took him seriously both times. Quintilian cites him merely for the vividness with which he portrays the scene. Because Quintilian has made it clear that he doesn't care whether your audience is misled or not. So here is another example of Quintilian talking about trying to rile up the emotions and palpability, making your audience feel like they're there. Again, notice how over the top this is. So too, we may move our hearers to tears by the picture of a captured town for the mere statement that the town was stormed. Now, while no doubt it embraces all that such a calamity involves, has all the curtness of a dispatch and fails to penetrate to the emotions of the hearer. But if we expand all that the one word stormed includes, we shall see the flames pouring from the house and temple and hear the crash of falling roofs and one confused clamor, blent of many cries. We should behold some in doubt whither to fly, others clinging to their nearest and dearest in one last embrace, while the wailing of women and children and the laments of old men that the cruelty of fate should have spared them to see this day will strike upon our ears. And there, I mean, he goes on and on, the prisoners driven each before his own inhuman captor, the mother struggling to keep her child and the victors fighting over the richest of the spoil. For though, as I have already said, the sack of the city includes all these things, it is less effective to tell the whole news at once than to recount it detail by detail. So effectiveness is all he's concerned about. And this is interesting. We shall secure the vividness we seek if only our descriptions give the impression of truth. Nay, we may even add fictitious incidents of the type which commonly occur. So yeah, does Quintilian give permission to add fictitious incidents? Yes, he does. Is he describing a genre of sober history where the audience, but where the audience nonetheless understands that this might just be added and they're not deceived? No, nothing like that. He's describing rhetoric where you're getting worked up, you're working up your audience, and maybe your audience thinks that what you're describing 
really happened, or maybe they recognize that it's just something you're imagining. Maybe you tag it, but you don't care because your goal is is narrowly pragmatic. It's to get them to run to the verdict that you want to win your case or to pass the law. Here he gives an example of riling up your own emotions, which no doubt you would have no problem with also saying to the to the judge, I am complaining that a man has been murdered. Shall I not bring before my eyes all the circumstances which it is reasonable to imagine must have occurred in such a connection? Shall I not see the assassin burst suddenly from its hiding place? The victim tremble, cry for help, beg for mercy, or turn to run? Shall I not see the fatal blow delivered and the stricken body fall? Will not the blood, the deathly pallor, the groan of agony, the death rattle be indelibly impressed upon my mind? Of course, it's not true that all of this must have occurred. Maybe the victim didn't cry for help. Maybe the person was struck down from behind and they just fell without a sound. What he's doing is deliberately imagining working yourself up. And that's related to trying to um, assimilate ourselves to the emotions of those who are genuinely so affected. Our eloquence must spring from the same feeling that we desire to produce in the mind of the judge. So you want the judge to convict. Okay. This kind of carelessness for about the truth is A, not being recommended for sober history, but for rhetoric. B, is not something where you're careful that your audience just understands that you're making it up. Maybe you tag it, maybe you don't. Um, and the audience may in fact be deceived and Quintilian actually envisages that possibility and he doesn't care. So that's not what the genre theorists are claiming, either about what Quintilian is talking about or about the existence of this understood genre. Now, the, the last thing I want to do here is to read a couple of passages from the Gospels. Having read some of these very purple, over-the-top passages where Quintilian imagines doing this, this palpability or vividness. I want to show you how the vividness of the Gospels is of a different sort. And this is somewhat related to my video where I called it Gospel Details in the Goldilocks Zone. And I, I will probably link that in my video description below so you can rewatch that. That there I argued they don't look like modern fiction. And here I'm pointing out they do not look like ancient rhetoric either. So here's one. This is Jesus predicting his betrayal and giving the sap to Judas. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. This is from John 13, beginning at verse 21. And testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And I just want to add, that's just the normal way that they reclined for meals. And so this is just saying that the beloved disciple, whom I think was John, is, is next to him. So he's close to him. This isn't supposed to be uh, some kind of deep emotion. It just shows that, though, that he was next to him. Simon Peter, therefore, gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. 
Now, no one of those reclining at table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now, we can dramatize this, and I think that this passage gives the, the raw materials from which you could create a drama if you were doing, for example, an episode of the, the popular uh, television series, The Chosen. And you could show the exact look in Jesus' eyes when he said, what you do, do quickly. Or the exact look in Judas's eyes when he said, or when he takes the morsel and he goes out. What does that look like to be Judas? But John doesn't do that. Okay. And even when he says they looked around, okay, they began looking at each other at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. You can imagine the horror in them that he says one of them is going to betray him. I even talk about this in uh, the eye of the beholder, uh, but he doesn't say, and we were all filled with great horror and we felt that we could no longer trust each other. And we, you know, he doesn't try to gin up those emotions. He describes it and he doesn't go on and on. It's got this kind of restraint to it. And even when he says, and it was night, it's this wonderfully vivid detail, but the vividness is just in that statement that he remembers that it was night. It's a real detail. Probably there weren't, as I've mentioned, windows in the room. So by the time Judas goes out, dark has fallen and that oblong of darkness is stamped on the visual imagination of the beloved disciple. But he doesn't elaborate. There's none of this purpleness to the prose there. And I, one of my goals in this YouTube channel is to try to um, awaken if it's not all over, already there or appeal to if it is already there. That sense of hearing that you have for genre and for noticing the difference between ways of doing things and the, the nature of the Gospels as memoir. I'm going to read one more, and this is a resurrection scene. And so it's kind of an exciting scene. This is in Luke. If uh, any of the gospel authors might have been educated in Greco-Roman rhetoric, and I don't know that he was, but it would have been most likely Luke, whose Greek is of a very high order in the gospels and who was probably a Gentile. And here's how he relates Jesus' first resurrection appearance. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their sight. So it describes that they were wondering and marveling and that they could hardly believe it for joy. But it describes that very briefly. It, the focus is on the dialogue and the words specifically of Jesus and what he did and what he showed them and so forth. Uh, imagine what Quintilian would have made of that or would have suggested that the trained orator make of that. 
it would be much more elaborate. It would be much more over the top. And he appeared suddenly in a flash of light and uh, they, they fell to the ground. Imagine, if you will, the feelings that must have been in their heart. And they watched as he took the fish and he put it in his mouth. Who knows, you know, what he would do with that, but to try to arouse the feelings and the emotions. By comparison, Luke is very restrained. Even some of the later apocryphal gospels, when the tomb is opened, there's this cross that touches the heaven and it walks and all of this stuff. Um, I don't know that Quintilian would have approved of that because that just looks silly. You know, Quintilian is of a somewhat more cynical variety. He wants these things to be things that could have actually happened, but described in a way that's just uh, manipulative. Okay. And so there's nothing in the Gospels that is manipulative in that same rhetorical way. The Gospels are much more restrained. Even when describing the appearance of the risen Jesus or Jesus given the morsel to his betrayer. I want us to start developing the ear for that. So there are several points here. First of all, the genre that Quintilian is talking about is not what Dr. Lacona thought it was that was inaccurate. Second, the genre he was talking about is in fact manipulative and could be deceptive. Uh, which is not the genre that the genre theorists are suggesting for the Gospels. And third, the Gospels don't, in fact, sound like that manipulative uh, and overwrought, emotional, elaborated rhetorical genre either. So in all of these ways, we can see the reliability of the Gospels as opposed to either what the genre theorists are claiming or the activities of the cynical Greco-Roman rhetor. Thanks for watching and come back next time.